That is a that's a beautiful opening prayer that Terry gave us. Yeah, I like that. I like that. I remember that. So I'm going to be up here just a moment um, to welcome you, and then I'll be back uh, a little bit later. Uh, it is a joy. It's a privilege always that we have to be together here to study Scripture, uh, but especially within the context of friendship and fellowship with other folks. That's an, an equally important kind of dynamic in all of this that, that all of you know about. Um, we're diving into the book of Exodus this year, and uh, today what we're going to do is talk about Exodus in broad and general terms so that we have a framework of understanding about it uh, as we then next week, start getting into the detailed word-by-word, thought-by-thought, story-by-story uh, conversation. Uh, so today's going to be perhaps a little bit different than most days. You're mostly going to be hearing from Jan and from me. We'll be able to take a few questions or comments, uh, but we wanna, we're going to dump a lot of information on you. Don't worry about that. Uh, Absorb as much as you can, take notes. Uh, Jan has some copies of things uh, that she's doing for us. Uh, at about nine months from now, it's all going to make perfect sense, okay? Does that make sense to you? Okay, so we're going to let Jan make sense of it first, and then I'll, I'll try to clean it up. So, <laughs> welcome. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Jack. <laughs> well... How many of you know how excited I am about doing Exodus? Yes. <laughs> you know how excited I am because I kept telling you when we were doing Genesis that you have to do Exodus next because it's just just an incredible, an incredible experience. So I'd like to start our morning off with just a, a, a word of prayer as we go into this moment. Thank you, God, for your word. And we pray that your spirit would illuminate our minds, our hearts, our ears to hear, and our ability to receive your word. Amen. All right, so let's start this exciting journey together. I think it's an exciting time to be talking about the Old Testament for many reasons, because for one thing, it's an exciting uh, experience to go through these scriptures for me. But there's a general crisis that we're experiencing in the world today that in some ways mirrors a little bit about the, uh, what we experience in the Old Testament. We have a, a world that is besieged or running from uh, uh, the experience they have in their own land to another land, don't we? We have refugees all over the world. And refugees and escape are a part of this biblical exodus theme. We have weather, for example, that even weather forecasters are saying weather of biblical proportion. And so we know that the, the, the stories that are handed down and handed out, even without being grounded in any kind of religion, has become a, a conversation that people have in the, in the marketplace. But these are things that are happening in the world today. And so I think it's, an, it's a, a wonderful experience for us. It creates an invitation for us to return to the old and the deep resources of faith that continue in the present, I believe, with compelling authority. 
And that's what we're going to find in Exodus. And in some ways, sometimes the, the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, which it strikes us as, as being ancient, being odd and, and remote from us. But I really believe that the Old Testament offers categories of interpretation and guidelines for life, our whole life, that are rich and contemporary in their force. I guarantee you that by the time we finish Exodus, there will be more than one opportunity that you will relate to an event or to a character. You will know that you have been a part of that story. So let's go back. And the big idea of the Old Testament, one of the big ideas, is that God of ancient Israel, the creator of heaven and earth, is a God that seeks relationship and is in relationship. And who is God in relationship with? Us. So this is a story about God's relationship with us. And it's about a God who is ready and able to make commitments and able to make promises, and, and willing to. And it's about a God who also allows God's self to be impinged upon by a variety of partners, if you will, who make a difference in the life of God. Imagine that. God opens God's self up to be changed even by the partners that he calls us to be. So that suggests that, the, that a defining category uh, for faith in the Old Testament is dialogue. It's this conversation that we have back and forth with God. How many of you think, believe that you talk to God? How many of you believe that God talks to you? Right. So we have this, it's a foundational understanding we have of our relationship with God, that it's a dialogical relationship that all parties, including God, are engaged in a dialogical exchange that is potentially transformative for all parties, including God. So this constitutes a conviction that God and God's partners are engaged in mutual talk, that we have a mutual, we have a mutual place of meeting, and that is in the way we talk to each other. Now, from God's side, this conversation may be promise and command and comfort, and it may be a blueprint or a purpose. And, and then from our side, we may be praise and worship. It, it's also prayer and debate and skepticism at times. So there is this dialogue that takes place, but it's, very, it's a very different dialogue coming from God who is being most God with us, and then we are being most human with God, and that's what we're called to be. So the Old Testament is an invitation to reimagine our life and to reimagine our faith as an ongoing dialogical exchange in which all parties, all parties, are variously summoned to risk and to change. So let's start now with the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. These are the first five books of the Bible that our Jewish brothers and sisters, this is what they 
studied. This is their foundation of their belief system is in those first five books. Israel's story of the beginning of the world in Genesis 1 through 11 is followed immediately by her story of her own beginning. So the first book in Genesis is the book of creation, but it's also right in the center is also begins to be the story of the creation of the nation of Israel, of the Hebrew people. And the story of the Hebrew people fills all five books of the Pentateuch. This is the story. You remember, this is the blueprint that Jesus, that God is laying out for how God is going to move God's people into this grand plan of redemption and salvation. And the one who created heaven and earth now creates Israel. So embedded within the narrative of the Pentateuch are the 613 laws revealed by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, does that number surprise you at all? Many people go by the gospel of Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments when they believe that only Ten Commandments came down off of that mountain. But listen, 613 uh, laws were, were believed to be revealed by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. And of course, the most famous of these are the Ten Commandments. But the laws of the Pentateuch are far more than ten of these issues. The laws of the Pentateuch cover not only what we think of as critical and ethical matters, but something that's very, very different and, and sets the Jewish, the whole Jewish notion of being Jewish and belonging to God separate from everybody else is that all of these laws encompass also civil and criminal law are also embedded in these 613 laws. In a comprehensive sense, they function as both constitutional and statutory law for ancient Israel. So it's no wonder and it's no surprise that the combination of sacred narrative, that giving of the law, and sacred law made the Pentateuch the foundation of ancient Israel's life. It's the foundation of their life. It not only told the story of, Asia, of Israel's creation, but it then continued to shape the world in which she lived. So primal narrative, it is, I think, significant. And we talked about this before. It is significant, significant that God doesn't give us a dictionary to explain salvation with terms and terminologies. And God doesn't give us a brochure, a PR brochure with catchy slogans and all of that kind of stuff so that we understand uh, uh, salvation. What God gives us is stories. God gives us uh, uh, the New Testament, the Old Testament, all scriptures are stories about real human beings involved in this grand plan of God of redemption and salvation. And it's the stories of men and women and children and, and their struggle and all of that goes into it. In fact, you could honestly say that it's the story of all people 
for all times because it really is our story as well. And you will, I, I guarantee you, as I've said before, I guarantee you, you will see yourself in this story at some point, at many points probably. So Exodus draws us into a story that has plot and it has characters, which is to say it has design and it has personal relationships. So story is an invitation also to participate. And you will participate in your imagination, but then you'll be pushed and pressed to participate more than that because you can also participate by faith with a total response to God, how God comes towards us in this story and then how we respond to God. And the Exodus story continues even into today to be a major means that God uses to draw men and women who are in trouble out of the, the mess of history and into the freedom, the liberation of the kingdom of salvation. In this story, we encounter Israel's primal narrative. And the Exodus story is primal in three different definitions. So it's primal because primal means greatest importance. And the Exodus story is the greatest, is the story of greatest importance in the Hebrew scriptures, certainly to the Jewish people. It is the story, it is the primary story, the, the most important. It is, it means it's a story of that is originary or originating. So it's the story the, of the events that are narrated in it are the story that gave birth to Israel. It's how Israel originated. So it's the most important story and it's the story of their birth. And third, primal means archetypal. Now, the connection between primal and archetype is suggested by the roots of archetype. So, arc means beginning, and tupos means impression. So, in your mind, think of a sealing wax that you put down on a piece of paper and it's made an impression on. Archetype means something that's imprinted from the beginning that recurs again and again and again. So you will see this archetypal story of bondage and liberation, of, of, of trauma and crisis and response. And you will see this story played out again and again and again. And in so many uh, venues, you'll see it. I, I was kidding earlier when we were with the men's Bible study. I said, you will see it in everything from the story of Jesus to the matrix where this story of redemption and, and salvation and drama and pathos is played out again and again. The story narrates the perennial struggle between empire, the Pharaoh, and the liberating will of God, between the lordship of the Pharaoh and the lordship of God, because that's what it will come down to. Like biblical narratives generally, Israel's primal narrative the primal narrative, remember in those three definitions, combines historical memory with metaphorical memory. And this is really, really important for you to remember when you encounter all of these incredible stories, especially, particularly in the Hebrew scriptures. Though the Exodus story contains some history remembered, 
and Jack will uh, uh, explain this probably a little bit better than I'm explaining it right now, but let me just touch on it. It is not what we think of as historical reporting. Rather, it is history metaphorized. Now, by that, what do I mean? How? What does that look like? History metaphorized. As the storytellers of Israel narrate the Exodus, they make use of remarkable literary, literary artistry. They make use of a lot of literary devices in order to make a point, in order to have us help us remember something, the intent of, of a particular story. One of the, I think, the, the greatest, one of the most significant and, and, and um, most used uh, device is that of dramatic hyperbole. And what does dramatic hyperbole means? Well, it's a deliberate and obvious exaggeration, whether it be numbers or whether it be years or whether it be uh, you know food or whatever. It's a dramatic it's an exaggeration used for effect that doesn't distort in any way the truth or negate the truth. For example, I love deviled eggs. Love them. And if I said to you, I could eat a million deviled eggs, or I love horses, and, but if I said to you, I'm hungry enough to eat a horse. Now, you understand that I could not possibly eat a million deviled eggs, nor could I eat a horse. But it does not distort or negate the truth that I love deviled eggs and I'm very, very hungry. So does that help make sense of that? That dramatic hyperbole doesn't distort or negate the truth of the matter. It just exaggerates in order to get my point across. So many of the scenes in Exodus are exceptionally memorable. They're filled with both theological and psychological insights that will blow your mind, let me tell you, when we get to them. It, I promise you that. You will walk away going, what just happened? Because it'll it, it it will it will ignite your imagination, but also you'll come close to it in a way that you have never before. So the stories of the tin plates and the crossing at the Red Sea tell of like stupendous and miraculous interventions. But whether or not the stories and figures are literal or metaphorical isn't the most important factor about them. The, the Exodus is rooted in the historical experience of ancient Israel. And the memory of having been Pharaoh's slaves is indelibly imprinted into on the pages of the Hebrew Bible and etched in the life of the ancient world. But also, it's described not just there, but also it's described in the Pentateuch itself, in the other five books. It's in the Psalms and in the writings of the prophets as well as in Israel's rituals and in, in Israel's liturgies. And whatever historical events lie behind the stories of the plagues and the crossing of the sea and all of these others, the texts are not simply reporting, this is what happened, but they are reporting how God is in the midst of what is happening and who people are in the midst of what is happening. So knowing this as leaders allows us to present Exodus from uh, many different 
ways that we could present it. One, we could just present, present it very straightforward and walk through it and say this happened and then this happened and this happened in the way that Israel told the story. And that would be fine. There would be nothing wrong with that. And we would be able to mine the richness of the ways God's nature is revealed through the miracles and development of the chosen people. But there is another way that we could walk through this together. And this path may lead us to read the story from a position of intent. What does that mean? In this process, you also explore the story in a very straightforward way. We read the stories, we look at the miracles, we understand them, but also it pushes us to take into consideration more deeply the question, why did they tell it this way? they use these stories and why did they tell it in this way and that allows us to get sometimes at the heart of a of a story in a way that illuminates it in a different way that maybe it didn't before the book of exodus moves us from slavery to worship it moves us from israel's bondage to pharaoh to a bonding with yahweh and more particularly, the book moves us from the enforced construction, if you remember, by the slaves to build all of these edifices to Pharaoh to this loving obedience in building the tabernacle to God. Exodus advances from an impressive situation in which God's presence is hardly noted in the text at the very beginning to God filling the scene at the completion of the tabernacle. And so about half the book is a gripping narrative of the, an obscure and severely brutalized people. And then the other half is a meticulous, and sometimes people feel like it's a tedious, basic construction and training about how to go about living now as this people who are forming. But in between these bookends of Exodus is this amazing range of activity, from plagues to sea walls, from wilderness to wanderings, to fiery mountains and golden calves, all of these things, God becomes engaged in events in a way not often paralleled in the Old Testament. And the people of Israel are certainly the focus of all of God's activity in these stories. But Exodus itself in Exodus 9.16 tells us that God's purpose is more far-reaching because it says in that scripture, my name, that my name may be declared throughout all the earth, which includes all of us for all time. So at that point, I'm going to hand it off to my compadre, who will now straighten everything out I just said. <laughs> This has been a lot of fun preparing for this study with Jan because you are so excited and so passionate. That's just magnificent. Is that because you knew Moses? Is that, is that? <laughs> oh my, such fun, such fun. So um, everything that, that Jan said is magnificent, spot on. You'll see how that all informs the story, the story informs that truth. Remember that, that what we have is the text of Exodus that we're going to be studying. And all those, in a sense, conclusions and descriptions of Exodus that you've heard from, from Jan and from me as well uh, are, are 
judgments, um, conclusions that we have made after having read the text. And so starting next week, we'll start reading the text and maybe come to some of our own conclusions, but it's, it's absolutely magnificent to have the tradition and the history of uh, literally thousands of years now, people thinking about Exodus, studying it, living with it to inform what our thinking is. And that's part of the beauty of this experience. We're continuing that tradition. It's not just one person sitting down reading the story saying, this is what I think. It's all of us reading the story and we're reading the story uh, with literally hundreds and thousands, even millions of other people who have read the story and lived with the story as well. And so there's so much more to learn from all those other folks than you could learn from any single individual person. And I don't know how Jan feels about it. I, you know, my whole life of teaching and preaching has been about stealing material from other people, uh, which is fantastic. And I don't know if I've ever had an original thought, actually, which is okay with me. So that's the way it works. Um, let's start here as, as we continue to work through this. Um, when we say the book of Exodus, I, I presume pretty much that everybody in the room, pretty much everybody who has grown up uh, at all with Western civilization has some familiarity with at least some little snippets and bits of the book of Exodus, okay? So let's start here. What are the, the events or the people or the situations of Exodus that you already know about, that you think about? Shout them out at me. Slavery in Egypt, baby Moses in the little basket, his mom's put him in the Nile River and set him off on his way. I know a lot of you wish you could have done that with all your children, but it, no, it's, <laughs> what else? Say it again. Passover, 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 yes. What else? The Red Sea, yeah, the parting of the Red Sea. What else? The plagues, yes, locusts and frogs and the Nile turning into blood and all kinds of cool stuff. What else? The famines, yes, the famines, the people starving, all that, yes. What else? The golden calf, thank you, yes, the golden calf. Slavery, yes, yes, the hard work of the people. What else? The ugliness of Pharaoh. Yes, the ugliness of Pharaoh. You know, let my people... When you think about it, Moses was, the, was kind of the, the first union representative <laughs> who came to Pharaoh and said, hey, we have some problems here. And Pharaoh said, no. What did Moses say to Pharaoh? Let my people go. Yeah, let my people go. What else? What else is... The Ten Commandments. Yeah, Tarleton walking down with the two big tablets of stones. And you've all seen the story that he actually had three and he dropped one and oh well. Yeah, yeah, there we are. Yeah, how the 613 got here, I just don't know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. By the way, the 613, uh, it is a tradition in, in Israel uh, that there are 613 seeds in pomegranates. Yes, and pomegranate, we have a pomegranate tree here now that Francie herself planted. Uh, Bob Fry, our other master gardener, brought in a pomegranate to my office the other day. It's humongous. It's this big around. Uh, but by tradition, every pomegranate has 613 seeds in it uh, that represent the 613 laws of Israel, right? What else? You're doing well. Yeah. 
The tabernacle, yes, the building of the tabernacle, yeah. About the last half of the book is about the tabernacle and, and building the tabernacle, yeah. See, you already know. Okay, there's a few others, big ones that you haven't mentioned yet. Sinai, the manna from heaven, Joshua, the burning bush. Yes, the burning bush. Absolutely. Good job. Good job. You get two gold stars today. Yeah. <laughs> so there, there's lots of stories. There's lots of stuff you know from Exodus, which is fantastic. And yet it's also a problem. Because once we have learned something about something, we think we know everything about something. And if we are presented with a new idea about something or a new perspective about something, it can be hard to incorporate. And so part of our job, as it always is in Bible study, is to take what we already know, what we've already heard, look at it yet again, yet again. Right? I'll, I, I don't remember actually, but I'm sure when I was three and four and five years old in Sunday school class that we were given handouts to color in of the burning bush. Right? And we had flannel graphs of all of these stories. And so I've been living, you've been living with these stories for a very long time. And we have the privilege yet again of walking through this story to learn even more. It was 21 years ago that we in this room studied the book of Exodus. And uh, 21 years isn't very long in terms of the history of biblical interpretation. I don't expect to find a whole lot of new stuff that wasn't there 21 years ago, but I do expect to look at it differently. So that's part of the fun. Let's talk a little bit about the historical background of the book of Exodus. Uh, and let's go back even further. How many of you remember what we studied last year? Genesis, good. I saw a quizzical expression on some of your films, right? Who knows, okay? Genesis and then Exodus, right? So what is the story of Genesis? What is the, the big deal of Genesis? It is, it's the creation, the creation and the beginning of everything. That's literally what Genesis means, the genesis of everything, okay? What is the big story of Exodus? It's contained in the title of the book. What is an exodus? Leaving, departure, right? All of you, all of us exodused this morning. We did. And, and in a while, we're going to exodus from here. We exodus all the time. See, the Bible is relevant all the time, right? We left. So Genesis is the story of the beginnings. Exodus is the story of the great the great escape, if you will, the great departure. And that's one of the ways to understand everything in the book. It's all about that. There are many other themes. We're throwing out a lot at you. It's all going to make a whole lot of sense. So in Genesis, what is the story? God makes everything. God destroys everything again, except for Noah and a few of the animals. And then God remakes it all. And then God appears to one person out of all the people and says, out of this one person, person. Actually, two. You got to have two to make another person, don't you, right? Abraham and Sarah. God is going to make a special people who will be an example to everybody else of what God means for everybody to be. That's the story of Abraham and Sarah, and then Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. That's the story. Now, when that story ends, remember the way, do you remember the stories at the end of Genesis, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then 
the 12, the 12 tribes, the 12 sons um, grow and develop. And uh, there's a problem with, with Joseph. The brothers get rid of him, but he ends up in Egypt and he ends up running the nation of Egypt, the empire of Egypt, and that saves the bacon of all the other families, the other brothers' families, because there's a famine, and so they come to Egypt, and Joseph takes care of them, and that's the way the story ends in Genesis. The family begins, 12 tribes. Now, here's a question. Do any of you come from a family of 10 or 12 siblings? Is there anybody here from a family that large? How about your parents? Did any of your parents come from families that large? Okay, more of us can talk about that, right? I have one brother, but my father had five brothers and four sisters. My mother had three brothers and two sisters. Families were larger then. If you observe or, or know anything about the history of those extended families, generally what happens in an extended family is that the family itself, the siblings and their families and their families after them are not all that close to each other necessarily. That's the way it happens, right? I know in my father's family, the oldest brother was born and he was married and having children before the baby sister was born, right? Before his baby. So, so she had nieces and nephews that were older than her. Uh, and, and families tend to move and spread out. And so by the time you get to Joseph's family and everybody gathered in Egypt, you've got lots and lots of people that are not really much of a family per se, other than by their, their biological lineage. And so one of the stories of Exodus is how God takes this huge group of people that are all related to each other and he forges them into a unified nation. And that unifying experience comes in, the, uh, in two ways. It comes in the midst of the horrible experience they have being enslaved in Egypt. And then it comes especially in the liberating experience they have of being delivered from that slavery and wandering in the wilderness. That's another one of the big stories of the Bible is how God creates us to be family, but we get it all wrong and start to fight with each other. And then God keeps pushing us back together as family. That's a way to look at it. So to put things a, a little bit of, in, a, in a historical perspective, we think that somewhere around the year uh, 1800 before Jesus, before Christ, or before what's now called the common era, um, is when Abraham was born. 1,800 years before Jesus. About 1,600 years probably before Jesus was Joseph. Okay? And then we're told that for several hundred years, the people of Abraham, the Hebrew people, notice I'm not using the term Israel yet, even though we've been introduced to that term in, in Genesis, right? Uh, God says to, to, to Jacob, your name is now Israel. That term was not widely used and it was not widely understood by the people. The Hebrew people related to Abraham, the wandering slaves, the, uh, the wandering Bedouins, uh, over the process of centuries, move from a privileged status as the family of Joseph, the second in command. They move from that status from the very top to the very, very bottom and they become enslaved in Egypt. That several hundred years elapses. And then there's this experience of the Exodus. 
Most scholars will not pin an exact date to when that was, but around 1300, some will say 1290. So let's say around 1300. You've got Abraham 1800, Joseph 1600, and then the Exodus around 1300. 300 years, maybe as many as 400 before the Exodus happens, just to put that in a historical perspective. So Exodus itself, as a book, of course, um, is attributed to one author. Who's the author of Exodus? Moses, yes. Moses is the author. And here's where we get into some of the historical question that I'll talk about just a little bit more. Jan gave a good description of it. I'll, I'll come at it a little bit different way. Moses is the author of Exodus, right? Was Moses writing his story when he was that little bit of baby put into the basket and you know set loose on the river? No, right? Later on, we'll hear in the Pentateuch, the Torah, the original five, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll hear the story of Moses' death. Did Moses write the history of his death? No. But it is by tradition that Moses was the one who pulled all this together. And we need to understand that that especially these older Old Testament books, but pretty much all of them, were initially stories that were told in the oral tradition. You've heard of the oral tradition. These stories were told over and over again for hundreds of years until people began to write them down. And different parts of the family, different parts of the nation would write the stories down, and they had different perspectives. They even used different names for God. And that's one of the ways that we trace some of the, the different stories that were all blended and melded into one story. And that blending and melding tells us uh, some interesting things about how we interpret uh, the, the book itself. But what we end up with is one story from all of that that has many different layers and many different aspects to it, which should not be surprising to us because that's the way history works, right? This is religious history. And when I, I use that term advisedly, not just because it's about God, but it is told from a particular perspective and for a particular purpose, right? Let's look at it this way. If you were to tell me the history of the United States of America, where would you start that story? England? Yeah? Or? Yeah, Plymouth Rock? Okay. Or Jamestown? Yeah? Yeah? If you look at the history of the people who are here in this place that we now call the United States of America, you've got to go back 15, 20, 25, 30,000 years to people who were here long before anybody else got here, or you've got to go back before Plymouth Rock, before the Mayflower, before the gringos hit the East Coast, and the Spanish folks came up into New Mexico and, and started Western civilization. It wasn't the United States yet, but that's all part of our history. See, the way you tell the history is important, and you can tell history in lots of different ways. The history that we have here in all of these stories is a history that is told after having been refined and developed and fought over and haggled about for centuries and centuries and centuries, but it's all meant to tell us about the presence of God in the world with human beings. It tells us about our relationship with God. And interestingly enough, because they were people back then and we are people now, the stories that are told from back then apply to now. 
Completely, absolutely. And so, as Jan mentioned, you know, stories of, you know, wild and crazy weather and all kinds of political haggling, uh, all of that stuff, none of that's new. Uh, that's ancient to the world, and it's a story that's partly here uh, in Exodus. So, um, there are some major theological themes that run through the book. Jan talked about some of them, uh, but there are some others that we can think about, and there's lots of different ways, as I mentioned, to slice this. But in a sense, the, the book of Exodus is a continuation of the story of creation. In fact, the whole human story is a continuation of the story of creation. Think of it. God made everything, set it up. We messed it up, and God's been trying to restore it and redeem it ever since then. And still is. And the whole story of humanity is a story of trying to get back to the way things were meant to be in the garden. So you have everything in Exodus is tied back to, uh, to the story of creation and to the cosmic purpose that God has for the world. Everything in the book is, uh, is about um, our knowledge of God, right? Uh, Adam and Eve in the garden had a perfect relationship with God. They knew God, so to speak, but they wanted to know more than God had told them, and that's what got them in trouble. But God has still been telling us about who he is and what he is, who he is not and what he is not. And the book of Exodus takes us further down that pathway, right? Moses goes up on, on the mountain, and God appears in the burning bush, and Moses says, who are you? That's one of the, we could spend, you know, we could spend, you know, a month just talking about that one little passage when God says, I am who I am, or I am what I am, or just I am. Moses, you weren't always, and you will not always be, except because I am who always is, was, and will be, makes you to be. Did any of that make sense? <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's all in there, right? So we learn who God is. We learn about what God does, and we begin to develop an image of God. That image of God is important because most ancient religions, especially the context in which Exodus was born, uh, people tried to picture God. You know, God is a big, honking, powerful uh, eagle, you know, or a lion, or this amazing creature with all these amazing powers, right? And God says to Abraham and to Moses and to all those people, don't. Don't make a picture of me. You can't do that, right? The picture of me that I want you to have is a picture that talks about my qualities, um, my presence, my love, my redemptive power, all those kinds of things. Um, one of the big themes of, of Exodus should come as no surprise to us, is that theme of liberation. So let my people go is a, is a great way to summarize the book of Exodus, right? When, when Charlton says to the Pharaoh, right? By the way, by the way, can you tell this is a huge issue for me, Jan? Yeah. So it was Charlton Heston, right? Who was Moses in the movie? Okay. Who played the role of Pharaoh? Yul Bless you. Bless you. Yeah. Now, now, poor old Pharaoh gets a bad rap. You know, here's Charlton Heston, the big, tall, handsome guy, right? And then there's Yul Brynner, so stern. But think about this. Yul Brynner was, was a normal-sized person right? Representing, in a sense, everything about humanity without God. Without God. That's the role that he played, right? And we're going to study the Pharaoh some. Uh, I think there's a lot of the Pharaoh in us. Hmm. 
Yeah, so we'll have to explore that. At any rate, liberation, freedom, right? We have shades of, um, who was the guy with the blue painted face? William Wallace, right? The, the, great, the great freedom fighter from Scotland's history. All right, that's kind of the way we look at him. And I know that's not historically accurate. I, yeah, we, yeah, Mel Gibson. Okay, Mel, yeah, okay. You know who played all of these people. That's good, Mel Gibson, yeah. We have themes of, uh, that, that want to talk about who it is that we worship. That's a fundamental question, isn't it? Who or what do you worship? Talk about the golden calf. Do we worship something that's other than God, or do we worship the true God? Is this God present with us? Is this God absent from us? Think about it. If your family has been enslaved for a few hundred years, you'd probably decide God had forgotten you and, and uh, given up on you, right? And maybe you would want to give up on God, but God did not give up. God still rescued his people. God is still present. Therefore, the people worship God. We're talking about the creation of Israel as a unique nation. There's an identity issue here. Who are you? Israel came to understand that they were a people claimed by, rescued by God. God kept paying attention to them and telling them who they were and what they were meant to be as a sign of what all of us are meant to be. So there's a lot of identity things going on here. That's what the, all those laws are about, really, is, is, is our identity, what kind of people we are. So all of those things are going on in the book of Exodus. One last thing, and then we'll take one, maybe one or two questions quickly. But uh, remember that the reason we are here and the reason we're opening this particular book, any book of the Bible, is not so that we can learn about what's in the book. It's so that we can learn about what's in the book so that we can learn about who God is and what that's going to mean for our lives today. Right? And so always, 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 as you're reading, studying, thinking, we start from the place of trying to understand what the book was saying to the people who wrote it, the people who lived it, and then what the book says to us. And that's where we start. We don't start with us and take ourselves back into the story. We start with a story and understand the story and then understand who we are because of that story and because of what the story says to us. So if you never get to the place where this story has an impact on what you think and what you do, who you worship, who you are, who you understand God is, how you live out your story, then you really haven't gotten to the point of it all. But you will. You will. And we're always going to keep that in mind. Any, I, I don't want to leave any of you just full of angst because you haven't been able to ask a question or say something. Anything that needs to happen. Now, most of the time, from here on out, there's going to be a lot of conversation. We've dumped a whole bunch of stuff on you, and Jan had the grace to write all of her stuff down so that you would get it all. Uh, and if you want me to, I'll write my stuff down at some point. But I, we thought her stuff was enough. Um, yeah, uh, it, it was, and it's great. It's, it's wonderful stuff. Okay, anybody need to say anything cool? All right. So um, we do not have any horse for you today over on the table, but there were some deviled eggs earlier, unless Jan ate them all. <laughs> Let's have a quick word together. 
Lord, we thank you for the joy of starting uh, a new season of study, a new season of friendship and fellowship, a new season of opening up ourselves to your story in our lives, and more importantly, our story within yours. In all of this, may we be blessed and strengthened and nourished, not only for the sake of our own joy and peace, but also for the sake of sharing that with others. Bless and be with us then as we depart but then bring us back together again next week to continue to open ourselves to your renewing and reforming and liberating spirit, especially that which we know in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. God bless you all.